Normally, at uh, an Advent service of lessons and carols, there is no sermon. But I've always believed that if it's Sunday, a sermon is called for. Uh, but it's posed some difficulties for the preacher because uh, at 8 I had to preach on the readings for Advent 3. And on this, uh, now I have to preach on the readings from the service of Lessons and Carols, and there are seven. (laughs) So what this is going to be is a breathless tour (laughs) of some of the more salient readings in Lessons and Carols. Remember, uh, the themes continue through Advent. uh, Hope, expectancy, repentance, uh, joyfulness, and the readings have something to do with all of these things. So I'm going to go through the readings from the Hebrew Bible, and then I want to spend a little time on the Annunciation story, because this is important. The Annunciation occurs only in two places in the New Testament, one in Matthew's Gospel, and then one in Luke's Gospel, and we read part of an infancy narrative uh, in Luke's Gospel today. So I want to say some things about that and do my usual linguistic stuff about uh, the words, particularly from the Hebrew Bible, which are mentioned today, by the way, in uh, one of the readings from Isaiah, and then to uh, talk about why we might want to think about uh, something we call the virginal conception. I'll explain some differences in terminology about that, and too, in a little bit. So let me say a word about Genesis. This is the story of Adam and Eve. And in biblical scholarship, what I was taught in seminary, which is probably not supposed to be for public consumption, but there you go. I've always said you need to hear it all, right? (laughs) The The language is very unclear in the creation story. It's very hard to understand. Uh, Adam is a generic name for mankind. Eve is a word that could mean uh, right next to. It could mean a lot of different things. And the words that are used are often different. So I'll just tell you something about this. Uh, Many years ago, there was a book written by a Roman Catholic priest named George Tavard. He was an assumptionist, which is a religious order in the Roman Catholic Church. And in fact, John Henry Newman, who later became Cardinal Newman, made his submission to Rome to an assumptionist priest in Oxford. In any case, Tavard wrote a book called Woman in Christian Tradition, where he talked at length about the creation story, and he went deeply into the languages uh, and so on, not just Hebrew, but the other languages that were around uh, at the time. And what I'm getting at is that today we have uh, the, the issues going to come up about the, uh, who, the forbidden fruit, and a lot of Christian interpretation, particularly since the Reformation, has blamed women for the fall. <laughs> right? She beguiled me and I ate. Right? So there are certain, certain fever swamps of Christianity in the United States particularly uh, that have said this is why we need to have a sort of one up, one down 
uh, kind of arrangement with regard to how we understand uh, women's roles and so forth. So Tavar goes through this at some length, and he concludes by this, and I'll just leave this with you. It would be a pusillanimous tempter indeed to have tempted the weakest link in the chain. <laughs> so always hold that. That's a retort. Yes, it is. You know, you can, you can use it as a retort if you want. You know, it's a good, it's a good thing. Um, but in the creation accounts, uh, going in deeper, you'll discover that they are an amazing, they're amazing pieces of writing. And in terms of what it is they're trying to get at is not a science text. You know, so don't worry about the rib and all of that. That's part of the, the, the confusion of words, you know, in terms of what this word for Eve could mean. So there's a, there's a lot there that um, bears Bible study. Let me just say that. Uh, Paul, in Romans 5 speaks about men and women sharing in the, the, the blame for the fall. Some of you may not believe in the fall. Let me just say this. G.K. Chesterton said one time, it's amazing to me that modern people do not believe in the doctrine of original sin since it is the most empirically verifiable thing in human interaction. <laughs> So I'm just leaving that there, too. <laughs> you know, think, think about it, you know. So in, in Isaiah, we're now moving into a more hopeful thing. Remember what we've read in Lessons and Carols is the, is the grand narrative. Part of what Christian people read and said, gee, this points to Jesus Christ. Even though the writers at the time had no idea who Jesus Christ might be. But reading their own sacred literature, they realized that God's abiding presence through the biblical tradition, through the tradi their tradition as a people for a few thousand years, began to show us that God abides with us, God always cares for us, God always wishes to be with us, God always forgives us, and God wants us to flourish, and God wants us also to assist God in his purposes for the cosmos that we count we're very important so I'm going to talk a, couple, a little bit about some of the, the passages because three of the seven are from the book of the prophet Isaiah but first last week I talked a little bit about uh, uh, the, the theory of Isaiah and how, how it puts itself together so I'm going to read to you now a short paragraph that is the most up-to-date stuff I try to keep up about Isaiah so you can understand. And then I'll explain why it's important because after I read it, some of you are going to say, who cares, right? The book is a collection of poems composed by Isaiah with additional material added by later disciples of the prophet. Through chapter 39, most of the material is Isaiah's and is an accurate account of the situation in 8th century Judah. Chapters 13 and 14 
24 through 27 and 34 and 35 were probably the work of others. Chapters 40 to 55 were probably written by an anonymous poet near the end of the Babylonian captivity, 589 uh, BCE, while chapters 56 and 66 were written later by anonymous disciples committed to continuing Isaiah's work, the school of Isaiah. Now, Insisting on the Isianic, how do you like that word? <laughs> on the Isianic authorship of this book in total, uh, robs it of some importance in terms of what Anglicans and other Christians hold as also very important, and that's the tradition with the capital T. When we read these, this sacred literature, how do we see the continuity over time? The reason why Isaiah had more than one author is because nobody could have lived that long in order to write, write the book. So what we're talking about here is the heirs, H-E-I-R-S, of Isaiah, and how they have transmitted the Isianic tradition about God's saving work and God's abiding presence and how we understand what that means. That's just like the, 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 the discussions about Pauline authorship of some of the letters. Because what it shows us, if you accept that, I'm not sure, a lot of that stuff is back up for grabs once more. But the fact of the matter is it shows you how faithful the writers have transmitted Paul's thought and his theological outlook. Right? So if he didn't write Ephesians... It sure sounds like him, right? And that can mean either he did write it, or it could mean it was written by a disciple of Paul who has transmitted faithfully some decades later uh, what Paul was thinking about justification by faith through grace, by participation in Christ, by all of the issues that he is uh, concerned about in his ministry. And so Isaiah has done the same thing. We read today, Comfort Ye My People. We read it last week, a great passage from the book of the prophet Isaiah. It appears in Handel's Messiah. That's why probably it's so famous. Although it turns out that there are some people nowadays who have never heard of Handel's Messiah. So I'm not going to jump on some elitist bandwagon about that, but it's sort of... I'm just amazed. <laughs> right? In any case, uh, Isaiah is speaking about how God's comfort comes to people. In the English, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says your God. In Hebrew, it says, speak to the heart of my people. The, the Bible translators in our tradition of the King James coming right through the New Revised Standard Version have kept comfort ye my people because it's hallowed by usage. Do you understand what I mean when I say that? And it also is, um, uh, resonates with the way in which God's presence can be understood and felt. So we're talking about comforting my people. Here's what's going to happen. Passages from this are going to be quoted in the New Testament, like they were last week. And so we will hear about that. In Isaiah 7, we have the story of, Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear in her womb a son, 
and his name shall be called Emmanuel, Mighty Counselor, God with us. And that is reproduced in Matthew's Gospel. So it, it allows me now to refer here rather than the enunciation part. I may repeat myself then. Uh, about something that is known as the virginal conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The virginal conception. Most people confuse. We have a confusion in this country, and that is immaculate conception. Immaculate conception has nothing to do with Jesus' conception. Nothing. The immaculate conception is a medieval doctrine that was developed to say that Mary was conceived in her mother's womb without original sin. She was immaculately conceived. And what that means, of course, is that she is born with post-baptismal grace. Now, there are a number of very important medieval theologians who have even been influential for Anglicans like Thomas Aquinas who said this, this is a, a nutso <laughs> so, so, so we don't we're, we're not accepting okay? but others like Bonaventure and some of the other people said well no and this is what it must be so that's what it means when we talk about uh, the, the virginal conception we're saying that the claim is being made that Mary has been conceived by means other than the usual means alright the kids in the religion class at St. Michael's school years ago would say I taught the 4th grade, the 7th grade 4th grade they'd say yeah well uh, so uh, Mary how how did, did that happen? The, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And when you're in the fourth grade, you go, oh. <laughs> by, by the time you're in the seventh grade, like, no way. <laughs> so here's what we have to say about this um, in, in Isaiah first. Let me say this. In uh, some of the, the English translations that we have had, particularly the, the uh, authorized version, we have had reproduced in Matthew's Gospel, Behold, um, or in, in the Old Testament reading from Isaiah, Behold, a virgin shall conceive in her womb and bear a son. Okay? So in the Hebrew Bible, the word, which is now properly translated in the New Revised Standard Version, the word that is used is the word Alma. Alma means a young woman of marriageable age. Now, Matthew has taken that word and used a version of the Old Testament that we call the Septuagint, which was written in Greek and it came from Alexandria. And in the Alexandria and in the Septuagint, it says Parthenos, which means virgin. And Luke does the same thing. He makes use of the Septuagint. It's very interesting because Matthew was probably a former rabbi and was a Jewish Christian and read Hebrew and knew the Hebrew Bible. 
So the selection of the Septuagint for this is a very important thing. And here's what Reginald Fuller says uh, in his commentary on this, on this passage. If I can find it. Um, All that the historian can say with certainty is that the basic elements of this, in this tradition are earlier than Matthew and Luke, who are otherwise entirely independent of one another at this point. Many would also argue that these traditions can be traced back to the earliest Palestinian stratum of Christianity. What is, what is the charismatic, that's a fancy word for the preaching, the thrust of the proclamation? What is the charismatic thrust of the Annunciation? It is that the story of Jesus does not emerge out of the stream of ongoing history. Our response to the Annunciation story should not be to accept it as an entertaining story or even to insist merely on its historicity and leave it at that. Our response should be rather the affirmation of faith in the transcendental origin of Jesus' history. Now, that could be a whole Episcopalian 101, right? We could talk about what that means. But the point that's being made is that we're speaking about pre-existing <coughs> traditions, which we read a lot about in the readings uh, from the Old Testament this morning. We read from Isaiah 7, then we read from Micah, who tells us, and he is quoted in the, in the New Testament about the fact that Jesus has come from Bethlehem, where David came from. And so we're linking up in this grand narrative all the people that are part of what they have perceived as the history of salvation. So when we talk about who's coming in Advent, we always talk about at least two comings, the birth of Jesus, the come, first coming, and then we talk about some future coming. And then we have to somehow reconcile this with our own internal, emotional, spiritual, and mental states and say to ourselves that there are times in our lives where we have palpably felt that God has come to us. That God is present to us. There, it is a species of the coming. And I said last week, Father Thomas Keating says, God is always on the move. He moves so quickly, you can't see him. Maybe that's why Elijah, he said, only saw his back. But as soon as you see him, he's back. So when you talk about how God comes, it's in this sort of instant, but the theologians would say, this is now and not yet. And so Advent proclaims what happened and also that it hasn't happened yet. And we believe because the Bible teaches us that Jesus is going to come again. But in, in, the, in the course of this, we're going to have to ponder how God comes to us presently. And the church has always had in mind the idea of more than one coming, the first one and others. So that means that the Christian hope is that people who die remain a continual emotional, spiritual, and mental reality that are safe with God and that one day all of us will be united one to together, the living and the dead.
That's what it says. Well, when's that going to happen? I don't know. Nobody knows. But the fact is that that's part of the Christian hope. Now, in Isaiah 65 today, we read about the idea of a new heaven and a new earth. God is somehow gone. N.T. Wright, the great uh, biblical scholar, English biblical scholar, said that someday God is going to come and put everything to rights. Okay? Now, you can believe that it's going to be a divine ethnic cleansing. And he's going to give the gears to the people who somehow aren't worthy. Or you can think that God is going to come now and bring his restorative purposes, his reconciling purposes to bear on human history, in human history. I think that's a preferable way to understand that kind of thing without throwing cold water completely on the fact that there are some people who can make the decision to turn away from God and in on themselves, and they get what they want. They get what they want. But most of us understand that it's important to see that uh, we believe in something bigger than ourselves. And by the process of getting closer to that reality, we see that there's transforming and saving power in it. We see the reality of God's unconditional love, acceptance, and forgiveness as an important kind of thing. Next week, I'm going to talk about um, the second piece of the Annunciation story which is going to be about uh, understanding who Mary is. You know, I think uh, Carl Jung was actually right about Mary. He said the reason why we have seen in Christianity uh, uh, the exaltation of Mary as an object of of, um, worship and adoration, although in technical terms, the worship for Jesus is different than the worship for Mary. So don't let people tell you that, you know, it's a different thing. But the other side of that is that it has something to do with connecting humanity to Jesus. Because it wasn't very long after the, after the Christ event or after all of the stuff that happened that people began to say Jesus is just simply so, so remote to us so external to us because we say, the tradition says, uh, he's not only a human being, but he's God. Most people forget that and focus on the God part, not that he was a human being. So one of the ways you can sort of get past that, or many did, was to say, yeah, but he had a mother, a human mother. You know? When I was in seminary, there was a, a thing that still, that went on every year called the Trinity Institute. And Trinity Church, Wall Street, had kind of a road show where they'd be in in Trinity Church in New York, and they'd come out to San Francisco, and occasionally they'd go somewhere else. And one year they came to Milwaukee, and were at the University of Milwaukee. And that year they had, they invited all these famous people in Western Christianity of one kind or another, and they invited Cardinal Sunan who was the Cardinal Archbishop of Belgium. And he came, and he gave a great talk. And at the end, he was talking about Mary, and he says, when you reduce Jesus Christ to a theological concept, a theological concept does not have a mother. (laughs) (laughs) 
So the focus on understanding the importance of Mary and the divine economy is there. But we're going to see next week Mary's ability to, uh, uh, to, to show a side of herself as Luke presents her that are going to, going to make us think a little bit more deeply about her character and about her importance. So stay tuned. <laughs> Amen. <laughs>